If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at uh, 31 verses in chapter 9 this morning. Probably for every person here in the room this morning, uh, there is a loved one, uh, a family member, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a close friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. Somebody that we really hope and pray they would finally come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And perhaps we feel like we've done everything we can think to do. We've shared the gospel with them many, many times. Um, We've even asked them to respond to the gospel. Not just that they would know its content, but that they would entrust themselves to Jesus, uh, who is uh, their potential Savior. Uh, Maybe we have uh, even given them sort of the key books uh, that Christians pass around on this topic. Uh, Mere Christianity, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, The Story of Reality, Reason for God, Case for Faith. We've brought them to church uh, and apologetics conferences, uh, maybe even Christian concerts. Uh, We've introduced them to our most respectable Christian friends, not the knuckleheads, you know, the respectable Christian friends. We've got a couple of those. We've done our best to explain the faith to them and provide reasons for faith and respond to their thoughtful questions and doubts. And we've prayed for them diligently. And we've asked others to pray for their salvation as well. That's the posture we've had with them for a long, long time. But perhaps over the years, it feels like there's really been little movement toward Christ. In fact, if we're honest, it kind of feels like they may be growing in hostility or disinterest. And we might feel like just giving up hope in trying to persuade them. Maybe we've even nearly given up hope for their salvation. Because it's just too painful to continue to hope and pray and share and then wait. And if that's how you feel this morning, if you've got a person in your mind, in fact, I I would challenge you, insert name here. (laughs) Who is that person? If you have that feeling this morning, then I think this morning's passage will be a great encouragement to you. In Acts chapter 9, we find one of the most dramatic conversion stories recorded in the New Testament the least likely person to believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to be our savior, was Saul. And Saul has a dramatic, life-changing encounter with the living God and results in a beautiful conversion. And I believe this morning it can encourage the most weary Christian witness. It can encourage us with hope. That's my desire. Let's do a little context work before we get to our passage You'll probably remember hearing a little bit about this fella named Saul. We were introduced to him back in chapter 8 of Acts. Um, Stephen, one of the seven uh, godly men that was selected uh, to oversee the distribution of food to the Grecian widows because they were being overlooked, uh, he goes on to uh, sort of preach uh, Christ, to preach the gospel. He's arrested for that. He's then questioned by uh, the religious Jewish leaders at the time, And he responds to their questioning by rebuking them, which doesn't go well for him. And in the middle of this uh, sort of interrogation, he announces that he has a vision 
of the Son of Man, the resurrected Christ, the Son of Man in heaven at the right hand of God. And for that, they drag him out of town and throw rocks at him until he's dead. They stone him to death. And it says this, we get these ominous words as that is happening. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We skip down to the chapter 8, verse 1, and it says this, and Saul approved of their killing him. So he's not just the coat check boy, right? He kind of seems to be the overseeing officer on, on the scene. The passage goes on to say, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. The story diverts from there a little bit, and, it, and it's kind of told to us through the life of Philip as he goes into Judea and Samaria and preaches the gospel there. The church expands. He has this encounter with Simon the sorcerer. Philip, uh, or excuse me, the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith. We looked at that last week. But as the gospel sort of continues to spread to these new areas and new people groups, Saul seeks to snuff out this movement by persecuting the church intensely. And that's where we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So the first point I want to draw out of this, and we just have three points this morning, three main points. The first is this, that the Lord is sovereign over salvation. The Lord is sovereign over salvation. This means that God is in control of who and how and when someone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, this doctrine, sometimes referred to as election or predestination, uh, is, is often unpopular and even uh, rejected uh, by many in the church. But I want to tell you that it is the constant teaching of Scripture. Um, I'll, I'll tell you too, just personally, this was very difficult for me as a young man. I grew up in a Christian home. I was going to a Christian school. My parents worked for a missions organization. So we were all about preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So predestination and election weren't taught much in that sort of an environment, if that makes sense to you. But in school one day, in my Christian school, it came up and I thought, I don't know about this. I don't know if this makes sense. I don't know if I like a God that works this way. I don't know if this is logical or just or 
And I had all kinds of questions, and I would go around and debate with all of my teachers. If you can imagine sort of a 16-year-old Eric, he was very annoying and had a lot of questions. And I struggled with this in high school, and then again in college, and then even in my first years in ministry. In fact, there was a season of about a year and a half where I got every book on the subject that I could, and I just read through this and devoured, trying to make sense of, of sort of this doctrine. And ultimately, what has resolved it for me is this. The scriptures teach it. The scriptures teach it. And I want to do just kind of a quick sampling of several texts that, that speak to this subject. Um, and, and kind of do, it's not exhaustive, but it sort of shows this teaching from a lot of different facets. Uh, the first in Ephesians 1.4 shows that God has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The second passage here, John 15, 16, Jesus gets very personal about this. And he actually teaches both from the negative and the positive viewpoint. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. We also see in John 6, 44, um, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So we see this is the work of God to bring us to saving faith. In two passages, one later in the book of Acts, and then following it in the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy, we find that repentance is something that is granted to us. Uh, that's the wording that's used. Acts eleven eighteen. it says, When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then even to Gentiles, that's us, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In 2 Timothy 2, 25, again, these are the pastoral epistles. This is sort of what a young pastor uh, gets educated in and mentored in and what it looks like to be a shepherd for the Lord. And, and here it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. In Ephesians 2, we find that it's God who regenerates us. It's God who takes spiritually dead men and women and makes them alive in Christ. It says in Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And then again in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we see that saving faith is a gift of a gracious God. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, and on and on from there. And so overall, the point is that I want to make that no one can look to their own conversion and say, look how smart I was. I figured it out. I reasoned my own way to the faith. God's pretty lucky to have me on his squad. I finally gave approval to his plan of salvation. Yes, I, I accepted Christ. That last one I'm going to expose a little bit here, a little bit more. The point I want you to hear this morning is this. Friends, God is sovereign over our salvation. John Stott puts a fine point on it here when he says, Saul did not decide for Christ but rather it was Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. 
A.W. Tozer, and I quoted him a couple weeks ago saying this, but Tozer's worth repeating, right? Can I get an amen to that? Tozer's worth repeating. He says this, he takes issue with our common phrasing of accepting Christ. He says, the trouble is the whole accept Christ attitude is likely to be wrong. It shows Christ applying to us rather than us to him. It makes him stand hat in hand awaiting our verdict on him instead of our kneeling with troubled hearts awaiting his verdict on us. That's the way of things. So the reality is this, to kind of tie all this together. God was gracious to choose you in Christ before the foundations of the world and to draw you to himself and to grant you repentance that leads to life and to regenerate you from spiritual death, making you alive in Christ and by grace, making you acceptable to him in Christ. God is sovereign over salvation. Now, I think this, this teaching of Scripture has sort of, this is a double-edged sword. There is both comfort and frustration in this. It can be frustrating as we wait for God to work in the lives of those that we love. But it is comforting to know that it is God who will do the work. And God's work is best. Uh, it is the work of God to save that work produces in us, I think, real peace and real security because our own faith is too flimsy with our emotions. But rather, we see that salvation is anchored in the sovereignty of God. So my prayer for you this morning is sort of threefold on this subject. First, that this would give you hope in the power of God to change even the hardest of human hearts. When I said fill in the blank, right, insert name here, whomever that is, God has the power to change the human heart. And this gives us hope to believe that. We see it right here in the resistant Saul, persecutor of the church. Secondly, I, I would hope that this would absolve many of you of some kind of, um, some kind of guilt that you may be carrying, some kind of unnecessary burden or blame for the lack of repentance of a loved one. It's God's work to do with them. And then finally, my prayer is that this would spur all of us on to a more bold witness because we don't know what occasion, what event, what verse, what discussion, what question, what sharing of the gospel might be used by God in their conversion. That God can use even us in that process. So, um, for some, this idea that God is sovereign over our salvation, I think it kind of leads them to a kind of a fatalistic questioning, right? It sounds something like this. If God is sovereign over salvation, why do we even bother witnessing to somebody? Why bother with apologetics? Why bother with personal study and prayer and other things? Why bother if God is sovereign over this? Or, or something like this. If God is going to save whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, what's this got to do with me? What role do I have in this process? And the answer to that is in the mystery of God, he chooses to use us as his instruments. The gospel spoken by us. The gospel lived by us. Uh, so I will say it this way. God has not called us to fatalism, but to make up a word, he's called us to faithfulism. 
to be faithful to witnessing for him. Um, it's interesting, later on in the book of Acts, Saul, who is later on referred to as Paul, and I have to take a little detour here because this is often misunderstood, and I once uh, didn't have this right. Do you know that um, Saul didn't sort of change and become Paul? That he always possessed both names? Saul's his Jewish name, and Paul is the name that he's known by Gentiles. It's more of his Gentile name. So he didn't like convert and then become Paul. He was always both. It's just that a part of his conversion meant he went to share the gospel with the Gentiles, and therefore they referred to him by his Gentile name. Anyways, just a little tidbit there. But here he is, uh, Saul, later on referred to as Paul, and he's talking to King Agrippa and sort of telling his story about conversion. And in his sort of personal account, we kind of get to see the intermingling of the sovereignty of God and the agency of mankind in conversion and how these two things work together. Uh, and so in Acts 26, 15, he, he kind of tells us his conversion story from his perspective. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so here we see this sort of this beautiful picture that God is sovereign over salvation, but he does use us as his instruments as someone may come to faith in Christ. And I think this should produce in us a real comfort and a real security, a peace, and a real gratitude uh, that God may turn even the hardest of human hearts to himself. And that gives us hope. A second main point this morning here is this, that the Lord expects us to take big risks as his witnesses. Big risks. And we get to see one here, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. By the way, that's always the right response when God calls. Yes, Lord. Don't screen that call, right? The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias uh, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And now, I'm sorry, I have to read this next bit with the attitude that I envision here, and I hope I'm right, but this is how I hear it in my own head, okay? Uh, Lord, uh, <laughs> I've heard many reports about this man and, you know, all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. Nothing like telling the Lord what he already knows, right? But, this, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I really love this interaction between the Lord and Ananias. I feel like it's one of these conversations I can really relate to. I can put myself in Ananias' shoes and, like, yeah, those are some of the objections that I might raise. Those are some of the concerns I would have. So, but let's just, to fully appreciate this encounter, let's recall something. Where is Saul headed? Where's he going? Damascus. Why? To arrest Christians and to bring them to Jerusalem to either jail them or kill them. What's his attitude in this? It says at the beginning, breathing out murderous threats. What's he carrying? Papers from the religious authorities to do this. He's authorized. He's 007, licensed to kill, right? What does that make Ananias, a Christian in Damascus? Makes him a target. That's who he is. I think it's fascinating the risk that Ananias has to take to go to Saul. I think most of us, when it comes to sharing the gospel, have some kind of hesitation. Um, We don't know where to start. We don't want to be perceived as a weirdo. We don't want to lose a friendship. We don't want to lose some respect. We don't want to come off as sounding judgy or something like that. In fact, there was a really fascinating study that was produced uh, by Barna here a couple years ago in 2019. Uh, Well, that's four years ago now, isn't it? That happened fast. Um, I've linked it in your notes. And there's a shocking statistic here. What they released this statistic, that 47% of millennials believe that it is morally wrong to do evangelism. And let me even clarify, 47% of Christian millennials believe that it's morally wrong. And, And to put a little finer point on it, it's the concern is more or less sharing your faith with someone who has a different faith that's what's particularly offensive to them. Uh, the other, other demographics, Gen Xers, it was 27%. It's my generation. And sort of boomers and elders before them, it was more in the 20% category. And they expect that this upcoming generation, why, when they get the statistics on that, will be over 50%. That's the attitude on evangelism right now in the church. That's what's growing and emerging. But even if we were to understand that this is something God commands us to do and we're convinced that it's right to do, I think many of us still feel sort of ill-equipped to do it, right? Whether it's how I get on with it or sometimes the issue is more about who. The, the, The subject is scary. The person, it's scary to go to them. It's risky. It's a friend. I don't want to lose their friendship. It's a coworker. I got to see them all the time. What if they reject this? Then that's awkward. It's a family member. We've been talking about this for years. I don't know if I want to spar over it again this holiday or whatever. What's amazing to me, though, is that in this ambivalence that we feel, we're more willing to disappoint God than to disappoint the individual that needs the gospel. 
And I want to tell you, Bethel Church, one of my real concerns for Christianity today and for the church today and even for our own church is that I think many in conservative circles no longer have non-Christian friends. That is a deep concern for me. I think um, many Christians, if not most, tend to exist in what I'll call Christian ghettos, where we continually steep in our own Christian culture while growing increasingly hostile to the world around us. I think that's what's happening in the church today. And I understand what's behind it and why it happens, but I don't think it's the right reaction. Something I want to address and put out here in sort of a threefold framework is what we what we might call Christianity and culture. How is it that the church responds to the culture around it? And there's really three ways that, that one might go about this. The first is this, Christianity against culture. Christianity against culture. This tends to produce a separatistic church that says, well, the culture's going to pot. We kind of got to hide in our huddles and we're really against everything that they're about and we disengage. Uh, The second group would be a Christianity of culture. We might call this the progressive church that says, wow, we're really getting separated from the culture. We have to accommodate our faith and teaching to what the culture will find acceptable. The third way is Christianity in and for culture. And this is the view that I would promote to you, which is that we are engaging of the culture around us without accommodating to it. We are in it, but not of it. We love people around us without endorsing all that they do. And that is a very difficult place to be, I'll agree with you. Tim Keller calls this a a third wayism. There's the first and a second way, and then the third way is the right way, as he usually teaches it. One commentator uh, sort of quipped about his, his, his framework here. He said, actually, third wayism is really first wayism because it was the way of Jesus in the first place. I kind of like that. I think this requires us to have a, a more full and robust understanding of what real discipleship to Jesus is. That we are left here and commissioned and empowered to be his witnesses, not to be spiritual recluses. And I, I'm going to challenge you, this is particularly sharp right now, and you might be sitting there thinking, oh, this next thing is sharp? We haven't, it hasn't been sharp yet? This is sharp. If you don't have any non-Christian friends or close acquaintances, then I think you have to stop and ask yourself, are you practicing a faithful Christianity? A follower of Jesus with no non-Christian friends or acquaintances? Does that follow in the manner of Jesus' life? Does that look like him? And my answer to that is a big fat no. What was the nickname of Jesus? Friend of sinners. What was he often doing? Knowing, associating with, and loving non-believers. That was the way of Jesus, and that's the mission that God has called us to. I was reading an old little book, kind of an out-of-date book. It's 60 years old now, by Robert Coleman, called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Sometimes those smaller, older books have some really pithy and sharp things for us to get because they sort of confront the culture we're in, right? And in this little book, he had, a, he had a phrase that just grabbed me. 
If it had been written today, the person would have been suspect of being progressive. And yet he wrote it back in the day when it wouldn't receive such speculation. But he said this, the love of God is universal. The love of God is universal. There's no people group, there is no person who is outside of his love. He loves those who are still steeped in their own sin. He loves them presently. He loves those who are presently opposing him and his church. Saul is an example of this. He loves those who are in active rebellion right now. He loves those who don't know him yet, don't love him yet, and don't serve him yet. He loves them in the midst of their rebellion. He loves completely those who are outside of Christ. The love of God is universal. And my question to you, church, is, do you believe that? And is that informing your discipleship? Um, I think all of us can sort of sympathize with Ananias here, this difficulty of, Lord, you want me to go to whom and what? Right? He's not just an unbelieving family member. He's not just a skeptical friend or an irritating coworker. Saul is enemy number one of the Christian church, and God calls him to go stick his head in the lion's mouth and preach the gospel while he's in there, so to speak. So I want to challenge us. We have not been left here on earth to be cul-de-sac Christians just tidying up our Christian ghetto. We've been left to carry out the mission of God, to engage the lost world with loving gospel witness. That's our calling. So for the, when we talked earlier about, is there someone that you know, that you pray for, that you hope would receive Christ, that insert name here? You're a missionary to them and to wherever God has placed you. Third point, and this will be the shortest, is this, that the Lord may save the least likely person. You're sitting there, and that person on your list, in your mind, their, their name, their picture, you're thinking, there's no way. It's been decades. No way. The story of Saul is a great counterpoint to that. Uh, verse, end of verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And many days, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by the night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. This poor guy can't get a break, right? When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, 
it increased in numbers. Uh, this, what a great picture of Saul, such an obnoxious person to the church that they don't believe his conversion. Everybody's mad at him, right? The Jews in Damascus, they conspire to kill him. The disciples in Jerusalem, uh, they're reluctant to accept him. It takes Barnabas to come in and vouch for him. Then the Hellenistic Jews try to kill him. All of this hatred around this man, it just reminds us that the Lord may save the least likely person. Um, making that point is one thing, but giving stories about it uh, kind of has some walking power, doesn't it? So I have some stories for you this morning, if you don't mind. Gus was a brilliant young man. Bit of a mama's boy, eventually a womanizer, an ambitious intellectual. Seeking acclaim and earthly glory and bodily pleasure, he rejected his mother's faith. Gus used his intellect to chase the world's best philosophies, including Platonism and Stoicism, genuinely looking for life's answers, but also ensuring him success through prominent teaching positions. Gus moved in with his lover. Never marrying her, he fathered a child out of wedlock. He continued to focus on his success and questions and pleasure. However, his mother, Monica, never gave up praying for his salvation. She once visited a priest and offered the following prayers and did so through tears. The priest looked at her and said, it is impossible for the son of these tears to perish. Gus's intellectual success would take him to Milan, Rome to serve as a professor, and ultimately he would find all of the world's pleasures and philosophies lacking. And one day, by the providence of God, he would meet the local bishop, a man by the name of Ambrose, an excellent teacher who would become a spiritual father and mentor for the man we now know as St. Augustine. Speaking of his mentor Ambrose, St. Augustine says, This man of God welcomed me with fatherly kindness and showed the charitable concern for my pilgrimage that befitted a bishop. I began to feel affection for him, not at first as a teacher of truth, for I had given up hope of finding that in the church, but simply as a man who was kind to me. Through Ambrose, Augustine found the Christian faith to be reasonable, though it was not the reasonability of the faith that ultimately won him over. His conversion would come later on the heels of a seemingly innocuous encounter when he heard a young boy say, take and read. Taking up God's word, he immediately read Romans 13, 13 through 14 about walking in the flesh. Heartbroken over his sin, he surrendered to the drawing work of the Spirit of God. Notably, Augustine attributes his salvation to God alone. According to Augustine, God found him and not the other way around. His conversion did not come as a result of answering nagging theological questions in fact, it was his personal encounter with the scriptures and a strong sense of profound conviction for sin that led him to repentance and faith. You've heard of a man by the name of John Newton, a slave trader turned Christian, author of the beloved hymn Amazing Grace. He wrote his own epitaph, which reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a traitor of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Clive Staple Lewis refers to himself as the most reluctant and dejected convert in all of England. 
Doesn't that sound like him? In his story uh, of coming to faith uh, in the book Surprised by Joy, he describes how he first became a theist and then eventually a Christian, or in his own words, how God closed in on him. Recognizing God's initiative in his salvation, he quips, If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could do nothing. He goes on to joke about what he calls amiable agnostics who talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Lewis also gives us an inside glimpse, I think, to the atheist's insecurity that we might all be suspicious of when he says, really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. As it was, God used G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, to crack the door for Clive, showing the reasonability of the Christian faith. God used his friendships and a key conversation with the Inklings, including Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien, to fan the flame of his spiritual awakening. And finally, C.S. Lewis explains that on November 12, 1931, he and his brother Warren traveled by motorcycle to the zoo, he says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Which leads me to believe I should get a motorcycle for evangelistic purposes. Right? <laughs> yes. One more. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor in fem of feminist studies at Syracuse University and a practicing lesbian. She was doing research on the religious right. Sorting the feedback she had gotten in her research, she placed it in two piles, hate mail and fan mail. Receiving a letter from a local pastor, Ken Smith, of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, she found his letter not to fit in either category. It was a letter that asked her good and pointed questions about the presuppositions of her research. Exposed by the insightful questions, she threw it out. But the gentle and insightful questions festered overnight, and the next day she retrieved the letter. These are her words. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to go to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. <laughs> Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's, way of holy, Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. <laughs> so she thought. I started reading the Bible. I read The Way a Glutton Devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgendered friend cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. 
This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lover, and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I love suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine song, love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. It's a beautiful story. Jackie Hill Perry's is like it. She says something that I find provocative in her own story. It's called uh, Gay Girl, Good God. It's in your notes there. She takes us along her journey of faith, which is just so courageous of her to let us see how, these, how the Lord was working on her. One of the things that I love that she says in her beautiful dedication to the book, she writes, my love for the LGBT community makes me desperate for them to know God. My love for the church makes me desperate for them to show the world God as he is, not as we would prefer him to be. And she's very explicit. One of the things I love about her book is she recalls that God did not merely save her out of homosexuality, but he saved her out of the guilt and condemnation of all of her sin. It is a beautiful testimony of the faithfulness of God. Friends, every conversion is a miracle of God. Whether it's a snobby theologian like Augustine or Clive Lewis, or whether it's a slave trader like John Newton, or whether it's someone like Rosaria or Jackie Hill Perry or that person you've got their name in the blank. I pray that we would be filled with hope. Our God is sovereign over salvation. Our God may use you and me in the process, asking us to do very courageous things, taking risks as his witnesses. And our God can save the least likely person. So may we dare to hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories. Thank you for the honesty of the scriptures to show us Saul, his murderous threats, his active persecution, and his bowing the knee in faith to Jesus, his Savior. Lord, I pray that we would not be a church that is reclusive in our faith. May we engage the unbelieving world because we love them for your sake and because we want them to know the glorious richness of being redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. May we be your witnesses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.